0: Let's open in prayer. Ah, Father God, uh, I pray that you right now will make me your humble servant and your messenger. Lord, these words are prepared, but they're meaningless without the anointing of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you will wing them and the truth that you want to open up and give the women to hold on to with all of their hearts that you'll wing them to them and plant them in their hearts that when the dark trials come they can hold on because there's much joy that lies ahead we pray this in Jesus name and by the power of your Holy Spirit Amen okay I'm going to start out with disclaimers alright disclaimers my shameless plagiarism is brought to you today by Wayne Grudem. This is his commentary. It was good. And I'm showing you these because really if if you get confused about things you're reading in 1 Peter, he he can help. And he helps in a... Not such a technical way that he'll drive you insane, but he, he's got some practicality and pastoral. I love commentators who are pastoral when they write, so. And then one by a woman. And this is really good. This is Karen Job, J-O-B-E. I hope I said her name right. But she is considered the top commentator. Uh, Writer, so commentary writer, um, outweighing the men, even. How about that? Anyway, no, it's just to say that this is she was really good. I really enjoyed her. I think she's my new Barry G. Webb. Remember how I was crazy about him? Well, I'm getting crazy about her. She's really good writer. <clears throat> uh, okay, so if you have these commentaries and you read something in them and think to yourself, hmm, seems like. The exact thing Donna Muir said in her talk last week, well it's because it is. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's talk a little bit about the value of studying First Peter. Scott McKnight was another author that I read. He was the author of a commentary uh and uh the NIB commentary, and uh he raised in his commentary the issue of relevancy. You know? He he asked, was First Peter relevant in today's Western culture? I thought. But because and the reason why is because most of his students enjoyed Psalms and Proverbs and Philippians or First John or the Sermon on the Mount, but First Peter was not their top. But he had some students from countries where Christians are socially marginalized and suffering like Yugoslavia at the time and another from Indonesia and they told him that First Peter is the most popular New Testament uh, book among Christians in their countries. So with that in mind as we begin delving into this letter I think that you're going to see soon, early on that First Peter is relevant to us today because um, the times are a-changing and because we live in the realities of existential despair and hopelessness that's why we have that's why we have such a suicide rate in our country it's huge and we know that this plagues our western culture it comes with our materialism and all kinds of other things all right so first peter speaks into that too now A month or so before Christmas this year, I asked a rather, I asked my daughter, Hope, a rather banal question. I asked her, what do you want for Christmas? I mean, right? And she answered me the will to live. And I, I was like, what? She was joking. That's my daughter's twisted sense of humor. Yes, it's twisted, but I get it. And I just, but it kind of sucker punched me a little bit. And and it had been the same response that she'd given me when I asked her what she wanted for her birthday last May. However, the circumstances of her life were different last May. At that time, it looked like all of her stellar efforts to go to the college of her dreams were to no avail. Not because of anything on her part, her academic success and her talent, that was not the question. It was money. There was not enough. Despite the generous merit scholarships and financial aid, the doors were shut, and her dream was dying. Actually, her dream was crushed, Making, but, but I put this in parentheses, making way for God's grace and generosity to enter the picture, I might add. You know, that dream was crushed because God had something else. At Christmas this year, Hope had completed her first semester at Durham Tech, where she attends on a complete grant. And she academically made the president's list. She's doing well, and she loves it. And when I say complete, I mean it pays for everything and more she loves her classes there and she enjoys her teachers and unlike last May her response was meant as a joke and it was actually funny this time when she said what I said but last May not so much not when I, I soberly viewed a picture that we had taken of her from behind as she was sitting on a rock by the duck pond at Duke Gardens last spring she was so dejected and so lost and so without hope, hope was hopeless. Despair had set in. And in a way, this is the atmosphere that Peter sends his letter into. The Christians in Northern Asia Minor, Northern Asia Minor, they were oppressed and struggling to keep going. And they were struggling to keep going, especially in their faith. And there was another issue at play here. Their faith in Christ put them at odds with the culture they lived in. They didn't do life like their neighbors. And and Peter actually refers to that. He writes about it a little bit in the fourth chapter of his letter, chapter 3. And he says, you have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting, and their drunkenness, and their wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. And this was the neighborhoods that they lived in. They didn't fit. And they were ostracized for it. And because of that ostracization, they dealt with slander and malicious talk, which undermined their relationships with their associates and family. It threatened their honor in the community, and and so people didn't trust them, and possibly jeopardized their livelihoods. How were they ever going to maintain a vital Christian faith in such circumstances? How were they going to respond to such unjust treatment? This pressed on them. This oppressed them. This was their oppressive atmosphere that they lived in. So into this, Peter writes a letter. And he writes to give them hope, consolation, and encouragement. And he starts by explaining their identity in Christ. And then, based on that, he sets out to help them understand that their suffering is an integral part of their identity. Hmm. But it's not just plain old Peter, the fisherman and disciple of Jesus, who is writing. It's Peter the Apostle. And there is a reason why he identifies himself as Peter the Apostle. Because this really means a lot when he starts out. By saying, uh, this is written by Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. He's saying that he's writing in his role as an apostle, which means that his words, that his words that he's writing are also God's words. And they should be received as such. He's the messenger, yes, but he is also the voice of God to them. And he's establishing his divine authority, which was given to him by Jesus, to the, the, him and the other disciples, and we read about that in Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And then everything that he tells them in this greeting, uh, he describes is connected to the reality and the identity that they are God's covenant people. Like we understand the covenant people of the Old Testament. And he uses Old Testament terminology to make that connection. But with this new understanding of this new covenant, which was, which the Old Covenant was a part of, it had a, a role to play in this new covenant. So he applies the covenantal language like election or chosen and diaspora, or scattering or dispersing. And he alludes to the ancient covenant made on Mount Sinai when Moses sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial bulls on the people. Can you imagine? Um, and, but that was the way that they were sealed into the covenant that they entered with into God with in Exodus 24. It was that sprinkling of the blood. A sacrifice had been made so that they could have this wonderful relationship Peter. but Peter defines this new covenant with them in which they, they now participate with these believers it's established by the sprinkling of the blood yes but it's established by the sprinkling of the sacrificial blood of Jesus the Messiah Jesus the Christ and not the blood of animals the way they had understood in the past he connects the dots with them on when he explains in verse 2 that God the Father knew you and chose you long ago and his spirit has made you holy, he wants them to know that God knew them long ago that time dissolves, it dissolves and Peter says their relationship with the Father, it was in place long long ago and what Bob and I read this morning it wasn't in place before the making and foundation of the world it was it was in place before the world was made that's crazy how do we understand that it's the bible uses this this word or peter uses this word called foreknowledge it's like something so hard for us to understand cuz we're creatures of time are we not we're in the time dimension of time but not god and time Dissolves, And one thing we noticed about this letter when Bob and I were reading it together is he's talking all the time about the past, the present, the future. He's shifting time back and forth throughout this entire letter and it's so apparent that time, our past, present, future doesn't play into God's plan. <laughs> it was always in place. It's hard to absorb up here. Um, But this foreknowledge Is laden with comfort for them Because he's connecting them to their past And foreigners What does he mean in his greeting When he describes his readers as Foreigners of the diaspora Like what I can't say it any better than My new Barry G. Webb, Karen Job (laughs) She's You know Fast becoming my favorite commentator And she writes this So here's her words By drawing an analogy between the Jewish diaspora, and we need to think Babylon, the dispersion. Remember when we were studying Isaiah? We were told that about them, that God was going to disperse them in the world. And the situation of his readers, because they had been, either their parents or whatever, they had been sent to the Roman colonies because they had been kicked out of Rome and ended up in northern Asia. That's kind of the history Peter implies that they should, this is her, Peter implies they should understand themselves as Christians in terms of God's people of the old covenant who were foreigners in the lands to which they had been scattered. The diaspora, or the scattering, provides a perspective through which they are to frame their experiences. Peter grounds his readers' identity in terms of their relationship to God by defining the role of the Father, Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, which is in these first verses, which is interesting, the a mention of the Trinity in there, by ex- defining the role of them in their conversion and their inclusion as people of the covenant. In the very opening sentence of his letter, he introduces a concept of Christian identity that is based first on relationship to God, and then on relationship to the world. But now, for the sake of time, there are two places that I want to camp out on today. And the first is to discuss the inheritance that they have and that we have. And secondly, to understand what Peter has to say about Christians and, and, and Christian suffering. So we're going to begin by what is meant by inheritance. Inheritance. Again, it's a, it's an Old Testament, uh, uh, covenantal term. Do you recall from your readings in the Old Testament, in Exodus in particular, what God, what it was that God promised to give His people as their inheritance? So they're traveling through the wilderness and they're enduring all sorts of hardship until what? Until what? Milk. Yeah, land of milk and honey, a promised land. A promised land. <laughs> yes. And in the book of Joshua, we read how they received their inheritance. They took possession of it. They took possession of the land. However, did they keep it? Did they keep the land? No, they did not. So now we're ready to begin Peter's letter. Uh, we're going to start in verse 3, though. <laughs> because we've kind of gone over the first first two verses a little bit it says this blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So through this redeeming act, being bought or redeemed by the sprinkling uh, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, by the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrificial sprinkling, God is giving you a new birth through the resurrection of Christ. A new birth. Everyone, all of us, when we are born, we receive our ethnic identity, our citizenship, our socioeconomic class, and our innate potentialities and our talents from our bio-parents. But then, when you are born again... You're given a new identity in Christ, a new citizenship. And it redefines your relationship with society. And it transforms your identity and your character. When Paul the Apostle was searching for a way to help the believers understand this, he used the concept of ancient Roman adoption practices. They differ from our modern-day practices, First of all, ancient Romans adopted adults and not children. And they adopted male adults. And that's why when Paul writes about adoption, he writes about sons. He'll always use sons because that was the way they did it. The purpose for this adoption was in order that the Roman estate owner might have an heir. Someone to inherit. And this became a sonship. And these were their laws that could never be supplanted Nobody could take this person's place, and once adopted, this person can never be disowned. It was permanent. All of the adopted son's previous debts and responsibilities were erased. His past life was erased as if he had never lived before. Whoa. And this was purchased with a very high price. cost a lot cost that owner a lot no wonder Paul used this analogy it reminds us doesn't it of our adoption into God's family where our new birth our being born again is not only to a living hope but also to an inheritance that never spoils and can't be taken away ever it's kept for them it's kept for you says Peter Peter when I was 11 years old I was reading a book in my room when I was upstairs in in our two story house and I could hear my siblings playing outside I heard the voices of my parents drift upwards and then the strangest and most inexplicable thing it it came over me and I've never forgotten it I felt an overwhelming sense of homesickness I wanted to go home but I, I was home and I was surrounded by my family What was going on with that? I was so puzzled by that, and I never forgot that feeling. And when my mother was suffering from Alzheimer's disease, she began to say to us over and over again that she wanted to go home. But she was home. She said that sitting in her kitchen over and over again. And I think what that says to me is that deep down in our souls, we all know we're not at home. We can't really rest. We're not at home here. Because our real home, our real Peaceful, secure home is the one that's being kept for us by God. And our promised inheritance, amongst other things, is that we will live forever in community with God. We learned that in Isaiah, didn't we? That was one of my favorite parts. We will be home at last. Secure. Safe. Not having to be afraid anymore. Don't you know we all wear an armor of cautiousness. Everywhere we go, we have to be cautious, don't we? Everywhere. Because this is a dangerous world. Can you even imagine living in a world where you don't have to be afraid anymore, ever, about anything? And you don't carry this aura of self-protection because you will finally be home. Home. I going say a few words about living hope but I just found out that Janice is really going to dive into this with you and I'm really glad because God sort of had me skim it and I think it's because he knew you wanted Janice to dive and go deep and she's going to and you're going to need that he's given us new birth into two things he caused us to be born again to a living hope a hope that is alive and not dead it's in contrast to hope that is dead dead hope It's the hope that's placed in futile things. Things that can be taken away. Paul describes the consequences of hoping in pagan religion and philosophy in Ephesians 2.12 and he writes it like this. He says, In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them you lived in this world without God and without hope and in first Thessalonians 4:13 he writes about the hope of the resurrection the hope of the resurrection and now dear brothers and sisters he writes we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. When Dr. Herlong, when we were in the hospital with Lily, and he told us that it was our baby daughter Lily's time to go home to God, and that it would be best if we took her off of life support, we were standing in the hallway, and Bob responded, and he told him, he said, we couldn't do it if we didn't have the hope of the resurrection. That's what gave us the courage to let her go. And yes, we grieve deeply, but not as those who have no hope. As those who do not have this living hope in Christ. Hope among their pagan neighbors for these people, uh, uh, for Peter's readers at that time, it was dead hope. But Christian hope is ever living because Christ The ground of that hope is ever living. The present reality of the believer's life is defined and determined by the reality of the past, the resurrection of Jesus. And it's guaranteed into the future. There we go, gliding through time. Because Christ lives forevermore. (coughs) Having explained this to his readers, their identity as chosen exiles, sojourners, temporary residents here, Peter then goes on to help shape their expectations about their lives here in this foreign land. So he writes the following, and I'm going to start at verse 6. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while these trials will show that your faith is genuine it's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold though your faith is far more precious than mere gold oh it's so unworldly (laughs) so when your faith remains strong through many trials it will bring much praise and glory and honor to you on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world, he's not revealed to the whole world right now, is he? He's revealed to us and to some. I cannot but thinking of the verse in Hebrews twelve two, which speaks of Jesus enduring the cross. It says, "Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame." It's like it was such a shameful, an object of shame in that culture. He like disregarded that. He endured it, and now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. In my quest to understand Peter's analogy of the testing of our faith being like gold is tested with fire, I came upon this description of how to purify gold. I just went, online, and there's something written by this man named Robert Paxton, who's a gold person. Anyway, this is what he says to do. He says, first, you place the gold ore in a crucible. That's a container that can withstand the heat of the of the furnace. And then you put the crucible in a furnace. And then you heat it to 1,100 degrees Celsius. And I know. And dross will rise to the surface. Periodically remove the crucible from the furnace. And skim the impurities off the surface of the molten gold. Stir the gold after each removal of dross, and before returning it to the furnace, and then repeat that process again and again and again until the dross stops rising to the surface. Let's just face it. If we're that gold, this sounds painful. And in fact, it is. But it's how our faith is tested with difficulty And with pain, although Peter says that there are various kinds of trial, it seems that they generally, in our experiences, they all kind of fall into three categories. Physical trials, emotional trials, and spiritual trials. I'm certain that you can think of friends and neighbors who are experiencing trials like this right now. Several of my closest friends are struggling physically. And one of them in particular is struggling greatly. And I'm certain, if you take a moment, you can think of the names of dear friends that are afflicted. Can't you? Yeah. Probably, they're coming to your head just like this. And we know those who are experiencing emotional trials, like our friends, the Logans, Emily and Jason. Do we all know them? They go to our church, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a baby daughter who has trisomy 13. They were told that their daughter would die hours or a day maybe afterwards. She's now almost nine months old, if not in fact nine months old. And they crest the top of the emotional roller coaster when Claire was doing well, and they are shredded with sorrow and grief when she suffers. Just before Christmas, they thought Claire was going to die. She had been put on comfort care at Duke. Our daughter, Lily, had been put on comfort care when they knew that her ending was coming. It's done to give them a peaceful passing. to the, and, and so they give them a, a pretty large dose of morphine to ease their suffering so that it gives the family a little time to say goodbye. And So we went over there to sing with them and to pray with them. And they, for two days, they prepared for her death. But... Claire had other ideas. She rallied and she's with them and up they go and down and up. Spiritual trials. Andrew Brunson's greatest fear, I know I showed you this book before. I learned I, yeah I love I think this is a well-written book. It's not a victorious Christian book. I like that. Because I don't think we live these nothing terrible ever happens to us victorious Christian lives, and if something does, well, we just have to have faith to get over it or override it. That's just not the way God works in our lives. It just doesn't. And Andrew talks about that. He, when you read this, you go, "Man, I don't really think he had one victorious Christian moment ever. (laughs) He didn't. He didn't." But his greatest fear when he was imprisoned for his faith first was that he would never get out. And second, he was so afraid he was going to lose his faith. He was so afraid. And his crime, you know what his crime was? He was accused of Christianization. Oh boy, how did he endure by God's power? And I'm going to read to you a little bit from his book. So, what he had to say about that. He said, I once read that even one minute of horror, of intense fear, leaves the body exhausted. It's true. In the aftermath of the new charges, I felt shattered. I struggled beneath the weight of what felt like a death sentence. By the third day, I forced myself to start to dance and pick up the guitar and worship. Forced himself. But in the long afternoons... I'd be close to panic and despair. I would read my Bible, meditate, and pray, but at any point, dread would pass. When I read that people were praying, or that some were even looking at me as a role model, I felt encouraged to press on. A dear friend had written to remind me to live for eternity. He mentioned the great cloud of witnesses that has gone on before me, but what caught my attention more was that a great number are also coming behind me. This impressed on me the need to be a good example, and so I would refocus, decide to persevere. And even though I felt alone, I would declare, I am not alone. He had people before him and people after. This was my daily roller coaster. I would get knocked down, but I was not staying down as long as I had in the past. From this very dark time, came one of my most important victories. It was in the afternoon, one day early in September, a couple of weeks after my court appearance. I was walking around and around in the courtyard, overwhelmed by the idea of my years stretching out into lonely silence as I wasted away. I opened my mouth to pray and to pour out my feelings, but instead of accusation or complaint, something entirely different came out. You are worthy, worthy of my all, came out of his mouth. I started to sing these words over and over. In my heart, I was declaring that Jesus was worthy of whatever I may suffer. And as I did, more words came. These words, but my heart faints, drowned in sorrow, overwhelmed. Make me like you, cross-bearer, persevering, faithful to the end. I bared my heart to Jesus. I knew that I would come so close to giving up on so many occasions. I desperately needed him to transform me so that I could end my race like he did. When I stopped singing, the song carried on, groaning within me with new verses. For a couple of days, I carried it around with me before eventually writing it down and adding some chords on the guitar. This was my heart song, a love song to God from the deepest part of me. I passed so much time in this jail he was in, in a fog of panic, but in this other jail that he was put in, I was able to think back with a little more clarity on my journey so far. I say jail, i meant prison. I remembered a very low point when I said to God, whatever things you have planned for me, however you want to use me, I give it up. I don't care. If I have no reward in heaven, just take me back to my family. I can't handle this anymore. But these lyrics showed how much had changed in me. I want to be found worthy to stand before you on that day with no regrets from cowardice, things left undone. To hear you say, well done, my faithful friend. Now enter your reward. Jesus, my joy, you are the prize. I'm running for the power of God, the power of God to help Andrew endure, the power of God that could never be taken away, the power of God that showed him that in that dark valley, Jesus was walking right with him. Uh, Peter knows that the faith of his readers is being smelted in the fire of various kinds of trials. But when the most precious things of this world, such as gold, when that's been destroyed by fire, and it will be, Christian faith that has been proved genuine will be shown to be the most precious of all because it will deliver you from the day of final fiery destruction. That day when Jesus is revealed, he reminds his readers that genuine Christian faith is more valuable than anything the world can offer. More valuable than than gold. How do these trials, allowed by God, affect our lives? It's been said that once the impurities are removed from gold, the smelter of the gold can see their reflection in it. Well I don't really know if that's true. It sounds so, you know, like a Christian thing, right? Okay, let's write that. <laughs> but I like that that thought. I like it. Because it thrills me to think that it may be the result of having our faith purified and tested and found to be genuine. To think that that might cause us to reflect God's very image. Wow. So I found this list uh, of six ways that we are changed and transformed by the heat. And that's the memorable word of God's uh, fiery trials. And, and this is where I'm going to end, by the way. Number one, course Correction. Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Trials correct us. C.S. Lewis says, pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebellious soul. I, I know that before having our daughter Lily, we were on the young urban professionals course. We were up and comers. And our values were dictated by our desire for success, which was measured by financial gain, and the rewards of career achievement. Brilliant, successful
1: kids.
0: But because of our daughter, that totally changed our course. Bob and I often say, it just turned us on top of our heads. Our values completely changed. And loss for us became eternal gain. Trials humble us, number two. If we're in the clouds, they bring us back down to earth. Ask Paul. Literally, he was. Uh, he records that he, he visited the third heaven and he talked to God more than once. However, he also says, Lest I should be exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, was given to torment me. For three times I asked the Lord to remove it, and he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Loss for him became eternal gain. Trials strengthen us, number three. James writes about trials, and he says, the testing of your faith produces patience. It's like spiritual weightlifting and strengthening that patience muscle. And, of course, in order to grow in patience, we find ourselves in situations where we need to exercise patience. (laughs) And I bet you can think of times like that right now. Four, trials equip us. They equip us to comfort others who are suffering. Before our daughter, Lily, I was afraid to even talk with people like Emily. There was a woman in our congregation at the time who had a child with trisomy. I can't remember the numbers, so I call it trisomy something or other. I think it was trisomy 18. And her baby died shortly after birth, and I was too afraid to talk to her. I was afraid that it'd rub off on me And that I might have a child with trust on me something. And well, I did anyway. And because I did, I lost my fear. And now God sends me to those women to comfort them and to help them to carry on in their mission as the mother of this child. And I return to the Dark Valley because I know now that Christ is there. I hold up his lantern of light when I go into that darkness to visit with them and to see them and to pray with them and to sing to them because he is with us. Five trials reveal the quality of our faith. Is it genuine? You look at gold,
1: 18
0: carats, 24. Is it fake? Our daughter Lily's life was like enduring a hurricane. It was. In 1996, Hurricane Fran ripped through Durham, and the next day, everything around here was a mess. Anybody remember that? Yeah. A lot of things fell down. In our yard, we lost lots of large trees. They didn't break in half. They fell down with their root balls in the air. But not all of the trees fell. And the ones that remain remain to this day. For their roots were deep and strong and true and held true. Trials shake our faith like that. And some of those things that we could have sworn were true and that we've been holding on to as true and we're certain and we're sure they fall down. But not everything. And we discover what's real. And six, trials refine us. Ask Job. Job says of God, He knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth like gold. I will be refined. We are refined. We are changed. We take on the look and the character of our new family that we've been born into. The character of our Father in heaven. We have our Father's eyes. We have our Father's heart his character, and a whole lot more. Now, I'm out of time. I'm over time, as usual. (laughs) And I haven't talked about seeing Christ but loving him. Those are the final verses I was to cover. And I haven't mentioned the prophets and the angels, but maybe you'll cover that in your small group. One of the sticking memories from the months of Lily's short life was coming home from the hospital one day when she was doing so badly. I was numb despair and hopelessness were palpable but for some reason I wanted to listen to the music of John Michael Talbot's The Lord's Supper so I put it on it was so worshipful and filled with the praise of the Lord and the trusting in the Lord, trusting in him and I sang along how could I, I was numb how could I do that I was emotionally wrung out but still, still the praise of God was alive dear sisters in the security of our salvation and his eternal promises we are not shaken we are not moved because our foundation is the rock that doesn't roll God spoke to my heart after Lily died and he said Lily was a part of your past and your present and now she's a part of your future She is now part of what lies ahead. And I'm sure you can think of what lies ahead for you. And so, my dear sisters, because we have been born again into an inheritance and a hope that is living, we endure. As for my daughter, Hope Renee, whose name means Hope Reborn, and who was born three years later in the same month as Lily, and was uh, supposed to be born on the same day as Lily, but she had her own desire to have her own birthday. As for her desire to receive the will to live for Christmas, I maintain that God has given us that and so much more. It's Christmas forever. And we have received new and eternal life, Living hope that never dies or fades or wanes, and a future home with God that cannot be destroyed, it can't be damaged, and it's permanent. Foreigners no longer home. I love this song by Fernanda Ortega. I asked Marcia if we could sing it, and she let us. It's, it kept playing through my mind as I worked on this Bible study, and I want to leave you with the words from this song, and then I want to know if we can sing it a cappella. When the morning falls on the farthest hill, I will sing his name. I will praise him still. When dark trials come, And my heart is filled with the weight of doubt. I will praise him still. Because that relationship, nothing's changed. Everything he promised, it's still true. For the Lord our God, he is strong. He is strong to save from the arms of death. From the deepest grave. And he gives life. And his perfect will. And by his good grace, I will praise him. Still. May we sing that together as a prayer. I'll start us out.
1: When the morning falls on the farthest hill, I will sing his name. I will praise him still. When the dials come and my heart is filled, With the weight of doubt, I will praise him still. For the Lord our God, He is strong to save from the arms of death, from the deepest grave. And He gave us life. In his perfect will, and by his good grace, I will raise him still. Amen.